All right, 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. The theme of 2 Samuel is a, a heart after God. We remember First and 2 Samuel are not really separate books in, in the sense that they were written by one author together. They were separated later on uh, because there's, you know, you have Saul's reign in 1 Samuel and then you have David's reign in 2 Samuel. But while the whole theme is the heart in these two books, um, this one really is about David's heart after God. And, you know, things are really going well for David finally at this point in chapter 6. You know, David's on the throne. All of Israel's behind him. The Philistines have been defeated. David has conquered Jerusalem. He, he has moved his capital there. And, and David is just in awe of all the blessings, like how just much favor and blessing God has placed upon his life. And he recognizes that God's doing that because God loves his people. And David's fine with that. He doesn't want it to be about him. He's a true servant, and he longs for those that he leads to be blessed. But when things are going great in this moment of David's reign, <clears throat> two new problems arise for him. And, and the, the sad part is, is both of these problems are of David's making. And so this brings up an important question to us. Do I respond to my personal failures by doubling down, or do I respond to my personal failures by humbling myself and making things right? So, chapter 6, we begin in verse 1. It says, And again David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, again uh, in the sense that he had gathered them to fight the Philistines. Well, now he gathers them for a different mission. It says, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people that were with him from uh, Baale of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwells between the cherubims. So here we see that David plans to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Uh, David's elite soldiers have grown from the 400 guys in the caves to 30,000 men now that all of Israel is behind him. You know, when Saul chased David around Judah, he took 3,000 elite soldiers. Uh, so the, the immediate thought here is, well, what military mission is David planning that would require so many elite men? Well, First Chronicles uh, chapter 13 gives us more details. First Chronicles chapter 13. <clears throat> Verse 1 of First Chronicles 13 it says, and David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And he sent unto all the congregation of Israel, if it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and the Levites, which are in their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us. Let's bring everybody to Jerusalem. And let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not inquire at all in the days of Saul. And all the congregation said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. So David gathered all Israel together from Shihor of Egypt, even unto the entering of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kirjath. Jerim. So uh, what we see here is that things were, you know, not as they should be in Israel. After David conquers Jerusalem and makes, makes it his capital, capital, David desires to fix another problem. You know, the Ark of the Covenant had not been in the tabernacle, the tent that God 
gave instructions to Moses for Israel to construct so they could worship the Lord. It had been there for almost 60 years. And that was a grim reminder of Israel's past wickedness, their time away from God under Eli the judge. When the Philistines defeated Israel, I remember they captured the ark. Now, remember God judged the Philistines for that, and so they returned the ark. But remember that didn't go well because Israel didn't handle the ark correctly when it returned to them, and then they were judged too. So it's been sitting in this guy Abinadab's garage for the entirety of Saul's reign. And that means, guess what? No day of atonement. No glory of God when they come to worship. All of that's missing during this time, this 60 years. Now, Saul wasn't interested in doing things God's way, so it really doesn't surprise me. He didn't try to rectify this problem. But what about the rest of the nation? You know, God promised to be in their midst, and they were missing out on that blessing for a very long time. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, it tells us that they were lamenting the fact that this had changed. It says in 1 Samuel 7, 2, it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim that the time was long, for it was 20 years. That's just at the writing of this. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They missed the Lord. They missed his presence. When they go up to worship, it wasn't the same because the ark wasn't there. This was a problem that needed to be fixed. And so when David proposes a plan, they got to go close to Philistine territory to do this. The nation says, let's do this. Let's go. And so they they get 30,000 troops together to go and secure this thing. Verse 2, and David arose and he went with all the people, these 30,000 elite soldiers that were with him, and he went uh, the King James says from Baalai of Judah, but it actually says to Baalai of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God. That's just another name for Kirjath-Jerim, which is Abinadab city. He's the guy who's taking care of the Ark. It says they went there to bring up from there the Ark of God, and then it has this little comment, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwells between the cherubims. It's not just any box, it's the Ark of the Lord. It's called by the name of the Lord, the Lord of hosts that dwells between the cherubims. The Ark is not just a piece of furniture used for rituals. It's not just an ornate box. It's a depiction of God's throne in heaven. And God promised he would set his presence above it. God's presence in and of itself is, of course, wonderful. But no one could ever approach unless you were the high priest, right? So it's not like Israel was missing out on that. And while they could not enjoy God's presence, though, God's presence and proximity brought blessing that they could enjoy because he's just awesome. Now, how do we know what kind of blessings God was bringing, you know, just by his presence being there? Well, it tells us here it was the presence that is according to his name. We see it in his name. You know, Moses understood this because in Exodus chapter 33, when, you know, he was, you know, asking the Lord, Lord, you know, please go before us and bring us into the promised land after they'd sinned with the, the golden calf. The Lord finally said, yeah, I'll go. And, and Moses said, Lord, I beseech you, show me your glory in, in Exodus thirty-two eighteen. And I love what the Lord said. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. 
And then, of course, we know the story. God's, God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, and he passes by, and he covers it up so that he won't die. And his presence goes by. His goodness goes by. And as he's going by and his goodness is going by, he declares his name, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, you know, all the things that he says there before Moses. That's the stuff that Israel was missing out on, the goodness of God. It's not that God wasn't all those things while the ark was away, and it's not that God didn't want to bless them. But God told them that he would bring these types of blessings through his presence there in the tabernacle. And they hadn't been obedient to that. The ark needed to return to its proper place for them to experience all the things. We sang that song, The Goodness of God, this morning, you know, to experience all those things, all those blessings. And so that's what this military mission goes to Kirjath Jerim to do. We're going to bring the ark back and put it where it's supposed to be. And so verse 3, they set the ark of God upon a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gabeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, they drove this new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gabeah, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. Uh, Gabeah here is not the actual city. We know from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, that Abinadab lived on a hill outside the city of Kirjath-Jerim. The word Gabeah just means hill. So the idea here is they go to this house on a hill, they get the ark out of, his, out of Abinadab's garage, they put it on the new, the new cart, and then Abinadab's sons are going to have the honor, since they cared for this thing, to one of them, Ahio, is going to walk in front of it, and then Uzzah is going to walk on the side. And in this place of honor. And then David's going to go before the, the procession of the ark, and there's going to be instruments, and it's going to be this massive celebration. That's what the word played means. They celebrated on all these instruments. It's going to be this huge parade to Jerusalem, a massive celebration. And you know what? Everything's going great. The ark is moving towards Jerusalem. Everybody's playing their instruments. What a special day for everybody, right? Until it's not. <laughs> Look at verse 6. And when they came to uh, Nahon, I can't pronounce that name, Nahon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died right beside the ark of God. Nothing, there's no party killer like somebody having that happen to him. Everything comes to a screeching halt. Well, what happened? Well, when the oxen, it says shook, it means they stumbled, which would have then caused the ark to topple because it's just sitting on a cart. Uzzah took hold. He grabbed the ark to make sure it did not fall off. And when he did that, it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God killed him for his, King James says, error. The word there, it's the word sin. And it means accidental wrongdoing. In other words, Uzzah wasn't trying to do anything wrong. He didn't sit there and think, I'm going to touch this ark when I'm not supposed to, and I don't care what God says. It was a, in the moment, he did something he shouldn't have done, but again, it wasn't with ill intent. We read this sometimes and go, God, why did you 
Why did you do this? Well, Exodus chapter 25, I'll read it to you real quick, verses 11 through 14, explains the building of the ark. And in the building of the ark of the covenant, it tells us how it's supposed to be transported. It says, and you shall make staves of shittim wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the staves into the rings by, that are on the sides of the ark so that the ark may be carried with those, those staves. In Numbers chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it gets even more detailed. Numbers 4, 5, and 6, it says, And when the camp set forward, Aaron, uh, sets forward, Aaron shall come and his sons, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. And then they'll put on top of the covering, uh, uh, on it, the, the covering of badger skins, and then they'll spread over it a cloth holy of blue, and then they'll put the staves inside. So the idea is, even when they took down the ark, when they were deconstructing the tabernacle, when they would go on the move, they, had, they were supposed to do it a certain way. Only Aaron and his sons were supposed to you know, break it down, and then even then, no one was supposed to see it. They were going to put multiple layers of curtains on top of it, and then slide the staffs in, and then the guys would come grab it. And so, it's interesting, you read on in verse 15, it says, and when Aaron and his sons have made, and this is God's instructions to Moses, when Aaron and his sons have made an end of covering the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary, as the camp is to set forward, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come and carry it, the ark. But they shall not, the sons of Kohath, shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. This is not a confusing issue of what happened here. God gave very clear instructions. This is how it's supposed to be done, and I need you to do it this way so nobody dies. Okay? The ark, first off, it's to be carried by Levites. It's not to be picked up like a loaf of bread. It's to be used the stave so that no one touches the ark. It has been set apart by the Lord, and, and he gave clear instructions on how to do it. How to, how to move it. And if someone besides the high priest family ever touches it, well, then they will die. So while Uzzah wasn't trying to do anything wrong, number one, he's not a Levite, shouldn't be the one carrying this thing in the first place, and he hasn't been trained in the proper way to care for the ark. That does not make what he did, however, okay. In Leviticus chapter 5, verse 17, when God is covering all the offerings for sins and trespasses, he says, and if a soul sin and commit any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he doesn't realize it, yet is he guilty and shall bear his iniquity. You see, well, that's not fair. Well, first off, let's not get into the conversation of what's fair tonight, because if we begin talking about the cross and we want to talk about fairness, all of us are going to lose that conversation. So the issue is, is that God is perfect. He has a perfect way of doing things. And it's not okay to violate that in any way, shape, or form for any reason. Okay? So that's our standard. That's how just things are. Now, as a sin, he did something he wasn't supposed to do. While his sin was accidental, David set him up for failure. David knew better. In fact, if we go back to 1 Corinthians, First Chronicles, if we go a few chapters after chapter 11, we go to chapter 15, 
we get some insight that 2 Samuel doesn't tell us. After this event happens and David decides to bring the ark back again, he, can, he shows here that he knows how it's supposed to be done. 1 Chronicles 15, verses 11 through 13. And David called for Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, and Joel, Shemaiah, and Eliel, and Aminadab, and said unto them, You are the chief of the fathers, the leader of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel unto the place that I have prepared for it. For because you did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us for that we sought him not after the due order. David knew how it was supposed to be done. He, did, he didn't do this out of ignorance. You know, he, he didn't do this because he thought, well, I didn't know God. He knew, and he set Uzzah up for failure. I don't know what he was thinking, but he, did, he made a bad choice, and it cost Uzzah's life. Now, there's a lesson for leaders there. It's this. Leaders can't afford to cut corners. Leaders can't afford to say, well, we're doing a good thing. How we do it isn't important. Doing things the right way is just as important to God as achieving the right result. I'm going to say that again. Doing things the right way is just as important to God as achieving the right result. And therefore, it should be important to me too. And so when this tragedy occurs, it's interesting. It's one of the first times we see this, but David's angry at the Lord. His, his response is not good. It says, and David, verse 8, 2 Samuel 6, was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, had, had, had an outburst upon Uzzah, Uzzah and acted. And so David actually named the place Perez Uzzah to this day, which means outburst against Uzzah. You know, every time somebody walked by there, like, hey, what's that over there? Well, that's Perazuza. Outburst against Uzzah. What's that about? God killed this guy, and David was really mad about it. The word, therefore, displeased, it's the same exact word when it says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. Same phrase. David's anger was kindled against the Lord. David was outraged at God for doing this. How can you do this, God? We're trying to do something good. Things have been going so well, now you've ruined it all. Ruined my parade. You know, David may have been thinking he was doing worship. But worship isn't worship because instruments are being played or people are celebrating or even because we have a, a spiritual goal or mindset. Worship occurs when hearts are yielded to the King of Kings when our desire is to do things his way. And you know what's interesting? That can happen without instruments, without celebrating people, and it can even happen without having the spiritual mindset. <clears throat> Some of the greatest moments of worship in my life have been when I just stood up and took the Lord's hand in obedience to Kim, despite not feeling spiritual in the least. David, <clears throat> we can look at this and go, man, I can't believe he got angry at God, but he's, he's not so alone in his response. I've seen... Many who name the name of Christ as their Savior get angry at the Lord, you know, because, well, everything was fine, and then God messed it all up, you know? And, you know, they say, well, yeah, but didn't, didn't you do this? And isn't that not the way God said to do it? Yeah, but, I mean, it's just one thing. Why, why did God have to go and let all this happen because of this one thing? I wasn't trying to do anything bad. 
It's never a good sign when my first response to a ruined day or a ruined month or a ruined year is to blame God instead of maybe look at what I could have done better. When I am in that place and I believe that somehow God has been unfair or God's been unfaithful to me, what happens is, is I automatically move away from two very crucial truths. Number one, the truth that God always loves me. And number two, that God is always good. Anytime I start to do that, I move away from those two truths. And when I move away from those two truths, and I don't know if God loves me anymore, I don't know if God's good, fear sets in. And so in verse 9, it says, And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? You know, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, that famous verse, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. That's what David, where David's at. He, he is somehow moved away from, from God's love because he doesn't believe, he's lost this idea that God is good, lost this idea that, that God loves him, and so now he's afraid. What, what is God going to do to me? He, he doesn't say, he's not saying, how shall the ark of the Lord come to me in the sense of like, well, how can I bring it to me? No, he's going, how can I bring this thing to me when this is what happens when somebody messes up? You know, is God just going to kill everybody in Jerusalem if the next bad thing I do? He was scared of what else God might do in the future. And so, because David's casting blame on God for this, he pulls away from God. And that left David to try to figure out what to do next on his own. And let me tell you, that's the worst place to take yourself, and it will always result in a bad choice. It will always result in a, in, a, in a choice that doesn't glorify the Lord. And so verse 10, David decides, we're not going to bring it to Jerusalem, we're going to transport it somewhere else. So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David. Instead, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Two important things to see there. Number one, how did David bring it there? He carried it. He had it carried, not on a cart. He did it the right way. And who's Obed-Edom? Well, if we go back to 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 15, we would find out that Obed-Edom is a Levite who lived near Jerusalem, the guy who's supposed to handle it. So again, David's not ignorant of how this is supposed to go. He knows who's supposed to handle the ark, and he knows how it's supposed to be transported. And guess what? Everything was fine on this trip to Obed-Edom's house. But instead of bringing it all the way to Jerusalem, he's scared to do that because he thinks God might get me again. Listen, <laughs> when you mess up, because it's going to happen, all right? If you're, if you're a believer, it does not make you immune to sin, <laughs> right? You know, we have victory in Christ, surely, but do we always make that choice? And, and you and I know the answer to that question. We don't. So we're going to have a point where we're going to have to own up to the Lord, all of us. Probably multiple points. Some, for some of us like me, multiple points every day. When that happens, when you mess up, don't make things more complicated by not owning up. God isn't out there looking to condemn you when you blow it. He's trying to teach us to fix it, and he is more than ready to help us do so. And so he allows something to happen sometimes so we can see this is not okay. And so 
The home's taken, uh, the ark's taken to this home of Obed-Edom the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his family, his household. (laughs) Do you know God is so, God is so gracious to us when we're in the worst place, we're in the worst mindset. You know, God could have been totally perturbed with David. Really? This is how you're going to do it? You're going to blame me for this. You knew how you're supposed to do this, decided not to do it. I told you what happened if you didn't do it right, and that happened, and now it's my fault? God could have been completely perturbed, and yet instead, he graciously blesses Obed-Edom for three, the whole time the ark's with him, almost as if to kind of lovingly tease David. David, this blessing could be yours if you just humble yourself and acknowledge that you should have done this right the first time. I'm not angry with you. You know, we can fix this. You just, you just need to make it right. You know, this blessing can be for you just, as it's like for, just like it's for Obed-Edom. Just make things right, man. Quit being stubborn. Instead, David stews for three months before coming to his senses. Look at verse 12. And it was told King David saying, David, come on, man. The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertains to him. I mean, his family's blessed. Everything he's got's blessed right now. Do you see all the awesome stuff that's happened to him? It's because of the ark of God. You know, someone came to David, or someones came to David and said, David, come on, God's for us, man. The ark is a blessing. It's not a curse. God didn't do anything wrong. And David finally cracks. He finally repents. And so David went and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David. Notice how he does it? With gladness. That's the mark of repentance. He does it with gladness. You know, many people never come to that place. They stay angry at God or afraid of God and therefore stay away from God. Is it good to stew like that for three months? No, but it's better to stew like that for three months than three months in one week. Three months in you know, two weeks or seven months or 17 months or 17 years. I've known people who are angry at God or afraid of God from something that happened three decades ago and they won't, they won't draw near because of it. If you've been staying away from the Lord lately, stop, you know. He loves you. He wants to bless you. I know there are times when it may seem like, but he's not for me. Look at what happened. But he is for you. He's not against you. Humble yourself and go back to the beginning. See, if I go back to the beginning, it it might get hurt again. I might mess up again. Something bad might happen again. Yeah? And that's why grace is there. That's why grace is there. There have been numerous moments in my life where I could have just said, you know what? I'm, I'm pretty sure God's done with me. And, and that means I'm done. And, and there would have been ample reason that in my own heart and maybe even other people look and go, yeah, I think God's done with you. But God has been so gracious. We see it example after example in the scriptures and you know it in your own life. And every time God has said, well, just come back and let's start from the beginning again. Let's start from the beginning again. You know, I was telling my son today in the car, we were driving home and, you know, and he was talking about formulating some good spiritual habits. And he's like, yeah, but it's hard. And I was like, yeah, but every good habit starts with one day. 
right? Everybody has to start somewhere. So let's go back to the beginning if you've been away. I love that David came back with gladness. David's desire to celebrate was awesome. You know, his desire to bring the ark back was wonderful. There's no reason to pout about this. Let's just do it. And let's go back and do it like we were going to do it before, you know, but better. Let's do it the right way this time. So David swallows his pride. He says, let's go back to the beginning. What we wanted was good. We just need to do it God's way this time. And this time they do. Verse 13. And it was so that when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he, David, sacrificed oxen and fatlings. You know, carried the ark, bear it. They carried it with the staves like it was supposed to be done. And it says that he sacrificed, he worshiped. Lord, you know, the, the idea here of sacrificed oxen and fatlings, these are, these, are, these are offerings of confession and surrender. You know, they're offerings of thankfulness and awe. And, and that's what worship is. It's about all those things. Now, can it, can it be exciting? Well, yeah, it can be exciting. You know, there's times when you, you just are so overwhelmed with the goodness of God or the, the mercy of God or the faithfulness of God or the majesty of God. And yeah, it's exciting. Sometimes, though, it's heart-wrenching. Worship is about confession, surrender, thankfulness, and awe, whether it's exciting or not. Don't put the cart before the ark. The ark. David danced before the Lord with all of his might. I've been preparing a demonstration for all of you, so just kidding. My wife is watching. She's like, don't do it. The word there means joyous, rhythmic, whirling motions. The idea is, and he's doing it before the Lord, which means before the ark. So the idea is, is David's kind of like one of those super talented like drum majors who do a bunch of dancing and stuff, like in, at the head of the parade where they're just going for it. That's David here. That is David here. He is just going for it. He is twirling around. I'm not going to do it. He's twirling around. You know, he's just, he's, just, he's just having, he is celebrating, and he's doing it, you know, unto the Lord. And, uh, you know, inevitably, every time I come to this passage in Scripture, someone comes to me and goes, and that's why you should let us start dancing during church. And which is where I have to remind us that this is not a church service. It's a parade. It's a parade. If you want to have a Christian parade and go dancing in the street, be my guest. You know, be my guest. You want to have a Christian party and go dancing, be my guest. Stay in your seat here. All of his might, nothing held back. There's no pouting from David, no half-heartedness. He is all in. And this is one of the things that made David a man after God's heart. David may have blown it a lot, but when he comes back to the Lord, he always comes all the way back. He always comes all the way back. You know, he totally believes in God's forgiveness, that it is true, and that God can accept him again, and that he can just continue moving forward. I don't know about you, I struggle with that sometimes, you know? You know, I, I, I know I hear the, the promise of God that I can come back, and, and yet there's a hesitance to me sometimes, you know? I'm like, can I really come back? Like, can God really use me right now? Or does he really feel the same way about me? Yes, 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 and yes. And David is a, a great example of that. That David came all the way back means we can come all the way back even when we've gone so very far away. 
God doesn't put us in time out. He doesn't treat us like second-class citizens. When we repent, it's done. It's forgiven, and we are welcomed back with open arms. Now, it mentions that when David's dancing here, twirling with all of his might, that he was girded with a linen ephod. Now, the linen ephod is the priestly undershirt. Um, it it kind of covered your chest, but it, it barely reached the knees. If you've ever seen um, uh, the, 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 the movie with Tom Cruise where he's dancing in just the shirt and the underwear, um, you know, not trying to stumble anybody, but that's kind of what David's looking like right here, you know? Um, that, anyway, people are like, why'd you bring that up? So... Just trying to give you a visual, so <laughs> trying to illustrate here. So, <clears throat> Pastor Chuck is like, he's up in heaven going, Lord, some, send someone to shut that guy up. <laughs> now, the problem is the priest normally wore a robe over that thing when they did their work, okay? They didn't just go out in their underwear, you know, with a long shirt, you know, and go and do in the service of the Lord. Um, so, but David, you know, he's not a priest, you know, and so he's likely wearing this garment because the priests weren't supposed to minister to the Lord without wearing them underneath. Um, th- those garments, the linen garments, the ephod, it represented God's righteousness. Uh, the idea is you know, they're not ministering in their own righteousness, they're covered in the Lord's righteousness. And, and so, but again, they would wear a robe over it, and so you wouldn't see any of that. Uh, but David's out there and just, you know, his skivvies kind of, and, and so, you know, he's, and he's twirling away. So uh, I'll, I'll let you imagine, I won't paint any visuals for you there. So David likely is trying to communicate to the people, listen, I tried to do this in my own righteousness, and Uzzah died. I don't want anyone to think I'm doing it that way anymore. It's almost like David is saying, I want everyone to know I blew it, and, and I'm trying to do this, you know, with the Lord's help this time. And that's fine. And again, just like we should expect when things are done the right way, God, the endeavor goes by without any incidents. It says, so David, verse 15, and all the house of Israel, they brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. However, this now leads to David's second problem in these good times. David didn't just have a failure with the ark. David's had years of failure as a husband. And so look at verse 16. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, David's wife, looked through a window. She's watching from high up. The word look there means to look like from a, from a high point down. She's watching David doing his twirling and dancing, saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and it says she despised him in her heart. The word here, despised, it means to have a very low opinion of someone. Her opinion went even lower than it had been. I can't imagine Michael had a great opinion of David when she returned to a marriage where she now had to share her husband with dozens of other women. But this was the last straw for her. Whatever affection had been there for David died right here. Now David, of course, he doesn't know she sees this. He doesn't know she's thinking this in her heart. So the celebration goes on, verse 17. And they brought in the ark... uh, of the Lord and set it in his place in the middle of the tabernacle that David had constructed for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So now the tabernacle's in Jerusalem, and, and David, he's going to have this big, huge um, 
sacrificial celebration. The peace offerings primarily were basically just to hang out with the Lord. When you wanted to offer a peace offering, it's mostly because you wanted to thank out, uh, uh, hang out with the Lord. Sometimes it's because you were thankful for something specific God did. Sometimes you just wanted to tell God you loved him. But a lot of times it's just to hang out. And so when you would offer a peace offering, the, the scriptures instructed them, invite your whole family. Make it a big celebration. Make it a big dinner. And so that's what they do. They'd have a big, huge celebration right there at the tabernacle after the offering. And so that's what David's doing here. Burnt offerings symbolize surrender. Lord, we are surrendered to you, and we just want to hang out with you. And so David invites all the people to do it. And so as they come up, and when he's done with all these offerings in verse 18, it says, as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he comes out and he blesses the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then he, he dealt among them, all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well to the women as to men, to everyone, a, a cake of bread, a good piece of, of meat, and a, a flagon of wine, so that all the people departed everyone to his house. I mean, this was a huge celebration. You know, the kings, you know, he's, he's just throwing out food and, you know, and everybody's, everybody's just, he's invited them all to this, this feast to just hang out with the Lord together. Awesome, awesome day, you know. What a wonderful time for everyone in the nation. You know, here everyone would sense the idea of what it meant to be God's people and to be a part of something special. Everyone, of course, except Michael. And thus, David when he comes home to bless his family in the same way, likely to have a feast there, he gets an unexpected response. Verse 20. <clears throat> then David returned to bless his household, his family, his wife, his kids, his servants. I should say wives. Um, it says that Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, so before he could come to the feast or give any blessing, she confronts him. And she says, oh, how glorious was the king of Israel today who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. The word there, glorious, means, oh, how you've distinguished yourself, you know, to, to raise your status in people's eyes. There's going to be certain folks who are going to see you differently now, David. Now, most commentators believe she was upset because David had exchanged his royal clothing for the clothing of a priest, uh, in her mind, a step down in status. That, in other words, they're saying she had the same mindset that her dad had, Saul, uh, that a king was above a priest. Um, however, the problem with that interpretation is that it doesn't say anything close to that in the text. It doesn't ever tell us that David took off royal garments to put on priestly garments. We don't even know that David ever wore royal garments. Three words make it clear what her problem is. Number one, she accuses him of uncovering himself. The word literally means to expose yourself, to disrobe. It usually has a sexual connotation. Secondly, you did it in the eyes of everybody. Who does it say he did it in the eyes of? The ladies, the handmaids. The handmaids here is actually the word slave girls. And these are often, that word's often used of people who would be prospective concubines. Thirdly, she says, you've made yourself like one of the vain fellows who shamelessly exposes himself, you know, uh, physically. The word vain fellows means men of bad character, people who, who just are immoral. When David was dancing in an undershirt that barely reached his knees, she didn't see worship. She thought he was auditioning for future ladies, future concubines. Now, 
Before we get to David's response to that, we do need to address Michael here. First off, is Michael in a bad marriage? Yes. Yes. I mean, any of you ladies want to share your husband with any other women, let alone dozens of them? Has David wronged Michael? Yes. But to take that pain and presume wrong intentions on David's part is also wrong. Two wrongs never make a right. And fighting fire with fire just means everything around you burns. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, probably the most unpopular verse for wives than when I'm trying to share with wives who have husbands who aren't obeying the Lord. It says, if any of you wives have a husband who isn't obeying the Lord. That verse is misquoted so many times. If any of you have a husband who's not a believer, that is not what it says. First Peter chapter three, verse one, it says very clearly. If I can find it. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands that if any obey not the word. That's what it says. In other words, if they're not being obedient to what God says in his word, not if they're not a believer. No, if you have a husband who's doing something or not doing something, is doing something he's not supposed to that God says to not do, or he's not doing something that God says he's supposed to do, any of those situations, how are you supposed to respond? Be in subjection so that they also may without the word or a word, your speech, be won by the conduct of their wives. While they behold your chaste, you know, your godly character coupled with reverence for the Lord. All all these things you read, I'm not going to give that teaching tonight. But if you're in a situation where your husband's not doing something he's supposed to, God has a clear command about how your, what your path forward is. So I don't like that path forward. I didn't ask you to like it. But it's what God says. Is that the path of least resistance? Nope. Is it fair? No. But I think we already addressed the problem with trying to go for fairness. Neither was the cross. And doing it some other way, doing it, you know, some way that you come up with that's not that way, it will never lead to godly results, never. It can't because God can't bless you when you're doing that. Now, like the situation with Uzzah, despite Michael's wrong response, this is ultimately David's fault. He does not set his wife up for success. He's a bad husband. But unlike the situation with the ark where David addresses his failure and goes back to the beginning, starts over, and does it right, David doesn't address his failure here. In fact, he hardens his heart at her unjust accusation, and he retaliates. Verse 21, and David said unto Michael, it was before the Lord. David corrects her incorrect assumption. I wasn't trying to do anything improper, Michael. I I did this for the Lord. Now, if David stopped there and he sought to de-escalate the argument, there might have been hope for healing. But instead, David decides he's going to fling some mud at her too. 
It was before the Lord which chose me before your father and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. David completely misses that she's upset about his, the other women in his life. He assumes that she thinks he's not being as regal as her father was. And so he says, well, you know what, Missy? God picked me over your daddy, so take that. And then David doubles down. There's a song that was very popular in the 90s, I'm not sure. It's called Indignified. You might like it. I hate the song. Completely misunderstands. There's nothing to celebrate here in David's words, all right? Nothing David says here is good. David says, therefore, since God picked me over your daddy, I will play before the Lord. I'm going to keep celebrating like this whether you like it or not, honey. And I will be yet more vile. I'm going to be more despised. I'm going to do more things that you hate me for. And I will be base in my own sight. <laughs> I love David. He, he, he just lays into her and he goes, yeah, because I'm going, to, I'm going to be a humble man. Listen, anytime you have to tell somebody you're being humble, you're not being humble. I'll be humble in my own sight. And guess what? Of those maidservants which you spoke about, of them shall I be had in honor. Ooh, David. Those slave girls you're so worried about, honey, guess what? They're going to think the world of me, that I love God, and that more than makes up for you having a low opinion of me. And then David made good on his threat by never sleeping with her again. Verse 23. Therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. Now, it's obviously, it could be possible that Michael refused to interact with David um, from this point on because of his retaliation, but the language implies that David's the one who cut her off. Now, that is a direct violation of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. And I realize that that wasn't written when David did this, but hear me out. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 5 let the husband render unto the wife due affection, likewise also the wife unto the husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Therefore, he says, don't defraud one another, don't deprive one another sexually, except it be with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. In other words, the only time you shouldn't have a healthy, regular, intimate relationship as a married couple is if you're fasting and praying. And then he says, come together again that Satan does not tempt you for your lack of self-control. Now, while those exact words were not written in David's time, the principle is all throughout Scripture. David punished Michael for her unjust critique by using sex and childbearing as a weapon. Sex, kids, childbearing, all that stuff is never to be used as a weapon in marriage. Never. Those wounds are so deep because they're so very intimate, and as a result, they take a very long time to heal. They take a very long time to rebuild trust again. 
And so what we see here, the principle that God lays out in regards to these types of intimate things is affection. Kindness is always the rule. Kindness is always the rule concerning the intimate relationship between a married couple. If you're trying to figure out, how do I handle this situation where I don't like what my spouse did? The first thing you should go is, I need to be kind. That should be the first thing, and it's usually the first thing that goes out the window when you have an argument with your spouse, right? Right? This is usually the first thing is, you know, we would never, ever say the things to our spouse that we would, we, that we, you know, to a stranger, right? We would never. We'd never. And yet we just like haul off at the smallest of things. I, I uh, a little confession to make here. In the 90s, um, I was a, a well-known national Madden football player, video game. And, uh, and so I was constantly practicing and whatever and, and whatnot. And we were having some type of a family event after church one Sunday. And I was on there. I was, I was doing a practice game or something. And um, my wife walked in front of the TV. And I snapped at her. And my sister-in-law, God bless her, looked at me and said, Will, have you said that to anyone at church who walked in front of you? Man, I, sh- I shrank to about that high. And, and, but it, it, something clicked in me. What, why did I think it was okay to talk to my wife like that? I would never say that. I would never act that way to anybody else. Why did I think it was okay with her? If you're in any type of conflict with your spouse, if you got, you're hurt, you're angry, they've wronged you, you know, whatever, they're not doing something they should do, you're disappointed, all the things that we experience in a marriage, because marriage can be challenging, the first rule is always kindness. Always kindness. Because I don't belong to myself anymore. I don't get to just haul off and do whatever I want with that person, with this body. I don't get to do whatever I want with this mouth or with, or with these hands or, or whatever else. I don't get to hit a wall. I don't get to slam a door. I don't get to stomp off with these feet. I don't get to do any of those things because this thing doesn't belong to me anymore. The first rule is always kindness. How can I say this kindly? How can I act kindly? And it certainly is the rule concerning the intimate relationship between a married couple. There's so much selfishness in the the sexual relationship of married couples today. It should never be about that. It should be about kindness, gentleness, tenderness, patience, all the attributes of love. They apply to that part of the relationship as well. Now, in addition to kindness, one of the rules of communication in marriage is that someone has to stop escalating. Me and my wife, you know, we teach this all the time to couples, whether it's in premarital or marriage counseling, either way, and so we know our stuff. And so, you know, sometimes I'll look around and be like, I'm not the one who's de-escalating. It's got to be you this time. You know, I'm always the one who has to own up. I'm always the one who's got to be nice. I'm not doing it this time. You're going to have to be nice to me first. Don't do that either. But the point is still there. Someone has to decide, I'm not going to keep this spiral going downward. I'm, I'm putting on the brakes. Do what you want. I'm not going to escalate any further. Someone has to say, no, I am not going to respond to your evil with more evil. I'm going to do my part, whether you're going to do your part or not. That's how marriage has to be. People say, oh, marriage is 50-50. Lie. 
Nowhere in the scripture do you see marriage is 50-50. Marriage is 100-100. And the consistent theme of scripture is you give 100 no matter what they're giving. You give 100 no matter what they're giving. That's the only way that, that healing can take place. So many times when I was at 30% or 50% or 70% and Bev was just following Jesus, walking with the Lord, loving me, you know, doing her part, and, and that's how the Lord got a hold of me. And I would say the same for her. When she was struggling, and, and that's part of what you were there for. If you've never read the book, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller, you, and, and you're thinking about being married, wanting to be married, are married, you need to read that book. Because in the very first chapter, he lays out, why do you get married? And the thing that we need to understand that when we get married is for the purpose of sanctification. God has brought that person into your life to help make you more like Christ. And that means sometimes they're either going to bring out or point out the areas are not like Christ. Now, if both people keep refusing to obey the Lord, like Michael and David here, well, then your marriage can't grow. But if one person starts doing their part as unto the Lord, the Scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians that it puts the other person in a special place where God can work on them. And isn't that what you want? Well, I'm out of time. I've far exceeded my time. When we look back at this chapter concerning the ark, David repented of his failure, you know, and he, he got things back on track. But concerning David's marriage, he, he doubled down and as we're going to study throughout 2 Samuel, David's family is a, is a train wreck, an absolute train wreck. And as a result, David is going to experience problems in his life that God wasn't part of God's plan, problems he never had to encounter. David was a man after God's own heart, but he sowed seeds this day in his marriage, in his family, that made future trouble in the paradise God had given to him. And that shows us that even people who share God's heart can make stubborn mistakes. So the key is, when you blow it, humble yourself. Own your sin, even if someone else isn't responding correctly. And then you'll at least be in the place where God wants you to be moving forward, and he is free to do as he wishes. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, you see every hurting heart out there, or maybe there are those tonight who have experienced Lord, a failure like David, and they're, they're angry at you. They, they, they feel like you weren't fair. Lord, I, I'm sure all of us have been there to some degree, but Lord, some of us are, have experienced greater tragedy. We've maybe even experienced loss like David did here. And Lord, maybe there are some today who, they're in a bad marriage, they're in a bad situation with their marriage. Lord, you've given us a path forward in both those situations. Go back to the beginning. Start over. Start doing my part the right way. And so, Lord, for every person who's saying, Lord, I'm not going to doubt your love for me. I'm not going to doubt you have a good plan. I'm not going to doubt that you're going to care for me moving forward. I'm going to trust you again. I'm going to start over. For every person who's praying that tonight, Lord, will you just, Lord, comfort them and strengthen them for the road ahead because I know the enemy is going to try to derail them. And then, Lord, will you bless their life as they seek to move forward following you with their whole heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.